let's talk about a new series that we're going to begin today. And I've titled this, How Sweet the Sound, The Amazing Song of Grace. You know, it was back in uh, 1779 that a new hymnal was published. Let me see if my computer is going to cooperate with me here. There we go. Um, and it was published by an Anglican minister in a small English town, the little town of Olney. And so it was called Olney Hymns. Now, more than a work of music, back in that time, hymns like this were really designed as a teaching aid. Uh, because much of the population, especially among the lower classes, were illiterate and uh, working class folks. And so how do you, as a pastor, teach your people and help them take the great themes of the gospel to heart and really learn them? And so hymnals played that really important role as a teaching aid for the people. Uh, because of that, the lyrics were usually quite simple, very concise, and uh, the poetry was written in a way that made the words easy to sing to a variety of different common tunes that the people already knew. So oftentimes, these songs didn't have a tune already attached to them. They were just written in a way that they could be sung to a variety of tunes. Uh, now, within that collection of hymns, the only hymns, there was this hymn, uh, hymn number 41, titled, Faith's Review and Expectation. And uh, you may never have heard of Olney or of the hymn, uh, Faith's Review and Expectation, but you probably have heard of a guy named John Newton. And while you might not immediately recognize that hymn, Faith's Review and Expectation, uh, you just might recognize the lyrics. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Now, there's probably no hymn that is more well-known around the world or more frequently sung than this hymn by John Newton that we know simply as Amazing Grace. Worldwide, I've read that it's estimated the song is sung publicly over 10 million times each year. Uh, so I'm going to try something that I've never done before, and that is to take this well-known hymn and use it as a launching point uh, for a sermon series. It's going to be a really short series, only three Sundays long. But one of the purposes behind John Newton writing his hymn was, in fact, to teach the gospel to his people. So it's very appropriate, I think, to use this hymn once again to do that. In fact, he wrote the hymn in 1772, and he did it in preparation for his 1773 New Year's Day sermon. So we are just coming out of New Year's. Newton had prepared this to go along with the sermon that he planned to preach on New Year's Day, 1773. So we are going to try to let this little hymn lead us back once again to Scripture and to think about the great central truth of the gospel, which is God's grace. And along the way, I hope that you learn a little bit more about John Newton's story, because it is a fascinating story. Uh, this hymn didn't simply flow out of good theology. The more you know about John Newton's life, you realize that it was a, a personal testimony of God's grace in Newton's life. Now, the original title of this hymn 
as I mentioned, is probably not one that you've heard before. And the same could be said of the original tune. In fact, the only hymnal actually did not include any musical notation. Um, all that appeared with the words was a metrical notation, 8686. And what that meant was that you could take each part of this and you could break each line up into various units of two beats each. So you can take amazing grace, how sweet the sound. There are eight beats in that phrase. Next phrase, that saved a wretch like me. All right, so there you got six. I once was lost, but now am found. Another eight beats. Was blind, but now I see. Another six. So what that notation says is any tune that uses that 8686 kind of meter could be sung with these words. And you actually know several tunes like this. In fact, I'm going to ask Burnett and Sarah to come up and help me out with this. Uh, you may be surprised at how many ways you can sing Amazing Grace. Why don't we start off with just the original tune, um, a tune that was called New Britain, uh, the one that we know. I, I say original. We'll talk about that more. Actually, not the original tune. We'll start with the tune that we know called New Britain. So, Burnett, sing with us. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. Okay, we just finished Christmas. Let's try Joy to the World. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found. Was blind, but now I see. Was blind, but now I see. Was blind, was blind, but now I see. Or how about O Four Thousand Tongues? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found. Was blind, but now I see. Or one more. Some of you may know this. Maybe it's a new one, but an old one called Oh God, Our Help in Ages Past. You see, there's a lot of ways you can sing Amazing Grace. Now, interestingly, while we know the hymn so well, the hymn did not really catch on immediately. In fact, as far as the only hymnal went, it was just hymn 41. Uh, Newton himself 
never mentioned it again in any of his diaries during the final 34 years of his life. So even in Newton's mind, the hymn didn't necessarily stand out above everything else that he wrote. And Newton wrote quite a few hymns. Uh, in Britain, where it originated, it only showed up in one other hymnal during all of the 18th and 19th centuries. Uh, the first time it appeared in the United States was in a Dutch Reformed hymnal in 1789, though even then it still wasn't connected to the tune that we know it with. Uh, it wasn't until 1835 that it was a singing instructor in South Carolina named William Walker who introduced Newton's words with a tune, the one that we know, called New Britain. Now, interestingly, nobody really knows where the tune New Britain originated from. Uh, William Walker published this version of Amazing Grace in a collection that he called Southern Harmony. Uh, and it was incredibly successful. That little hymnal sold over 600,000 copies. And that was when Amazing Grace began to become well-known in the United States. Uh, now, William Walker popularized it. But one of his primary sources was a collection of spirituals that had been sung by African-American slaves called plantation songs. And interestingly, one verse of Amazing Grace is actually quoted in the anti-slavery novel written by Harriet Beecher Stowe called Uncle Tom's Cabin. Here's what we find in that book. Tom looked up to the silent, ever-living stars. The night rang with the triumphant words of a hymn which he had sung often in happier days, but never with such feeling as now. The earth shall be dissolved like snow. The sun shall cease to shine. But God who called me here below shall be forever mine. That comes from chapter 35 in Uncle Tom's Cabin. Uncle Tom's Cabin also introduced something else, and that is a final verse to the hymn that had never been part of Newton's original composition. When we've been there, 10,000 years bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. And that verse actually came from another African-American spiritual, called Jerusalem, My Happy Home. That's the first time we see it appear. So it was, which meant that the hymn had been sung in Virginia for at least 50 years prior to William Walker's hymnal coming out. It was in 1910 that a well-known revivalist and worship leader named Edwin Othello published a new hymn book called Coronation Hymns. And this was where we finally paired the first three stanzas that Newton had written, along with the final verse from Jerusalem, My Happy Home, along with the tune, New Britain. And that is the version that we have all come to know. As they say, the rest is history. But I think as we dig into this more in the next couple of weeks, you're going to see what a beautiful thing it is that a hymn about grace started by a man like John Newton, finds its climaxing verse to be one that originated in the hearts and minds of slaves who were longing for freedom. Because that, too, is a story of grace. Well, I told you that Newton originally wrote this hymn in preparation for a New Year's Day sermon. And his text that morning 
was taken from 1 Chronicles chapter 17, verses 16 and 17. And I'm going to read it to you. I'm going to actually go a little bit farther down to verse 19. And I'm going to read it from the King James Version because that's the translation that Newton would have had the first time he preached it. Here's what it says. And David the king came and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is mine house that thou hast brought me hitherto? And yet this was a small thing in thine eyes, O God, for thou hast also spoken of thy servant's house for a great while to come, and hast regarding me according to the estate of a man of high degree, O Lord God. What can David speak more to thee for the honor of thy servant? For thou knowest thy servant, O Lord. For thy servant's sake and according to thine own heart hast thou done all this greatness in making known all these great things. We'll read that again in just a few minutes in maybe a way that's easier to understand. But if you're not aware of the story of King David, let me give you a quick summary. David was the youngest of a large family of brothers. Uh, the king that preceded David, actually the first king of Israel, was a man named Saul. Uh, and he was a king by popular demand. Uh, he was a guy who, by every indication, had all the stuff that you would want in a kingly king. Uh, he was strong. He was good-looking. He was smart. He was a warrior. Uh, he even knew how to do that window washer wave in parades. I mean, this guy had it all. He was the package. Unfortunately, Saul knew that he was good, and he got proud and jealous and corrupt, and eventually God removed him as king. Before he was even off the throne, though, God told the prophet Samuel that he wanted him to go to the house of Jesse, and he said that he was going to show him who the next king was going to be, and, and that Samuel then was to anoint that new king as such, even though Saul was still on the throne. So we, we just came through Christmas. Anybody want to guess where Jesse and his boys lived? In a little town called Bethlehem. So Samuel shows up and he tells Jesse that he needs to, bring his, he needs to meet his sons. And so Jesse brings each of his sons to Samuel from the oldest to the youngest because especially in that culture, uh, the order of age was important. The honor, uh, the most honor usually went to the eldest son. And, uh, and they were a fine group indeed. Uh, in fact, here is Samuel's response when he looks at them. 1 Samuel 16, 6, this from the New Living Translation. Samuel took one look at Eliab and thought, surely this is the Lord's anointed. But the Lord said to Samuel, don't judge by his appearance or height, for I've rejected him. The Lord doesn't see things the way you see them. People judge by outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. You probably know that studies show that tall males with good hair have a higher earning potential than short guys, which explains so many challenges in my life. which I'm really grateful that God does not rate me on either my height or my hair. But that process that just happened right there, it, it continues, it repeats itself with Jesse's other sons. As each one comes, Samuel thinks, well, this must be the one. And every time, the Lord says to Samuel, nope, not him. And, and finally, Jesse seems to run out of sons, and Samuel is a little bit perplexed, and he says to Jesse, he says, well, is that it? And it turns out that Jesse does actually have one more. 
there is the youngest, a kid apparently seen as such an afterthought that he wasn't invited even to come in from watching sheep. And his name was David. And it turns out that he was exactly the guy that God had in mind for king. So David became king, and he became a great king. Israel went from being a joke as a nation to being a powerhouse. David's reign began what was known as the golden era of Israel. Enemies were defeated, peace reigned, the nation became prosperous. And eventually the day came that David started looking at the tabernacle, the, the tent of worship they'd had ever since they'd been with Moses in the wilderness, and he began to feel kind of guilty because he thought, wow, we're doing so well. And at that point, David himself was living in a fine palace, and he thought, here I'm living in a great palace, and we still are worshiping God in a tent. I'd like to do something better than that. I'd like to build a, a real temple, a grand edifice. But we find that God let David know that he was not to be the one who was going to build that temple, that it would be his son Solomon who would have that honor. But along with that disappointing news, there also was encouraging promise. Here's the promise that was given to David. This is what the Lord of Heaven's armies has declared. I took you from tending sheep in the pasture and selected you to be the leader of my people Israel. I've been with you wherever you have gone. I've destroyed all your enemies before your eyes. Now I will make your name as famous as anyone who has ever lived on the earth. And I will provide a homeland for my people Israel, planting them in a secure place where they will never be disturbed. Evil nations won't oppress them as they've done in the past, starting from the time I appointed judges to rule my people Israel, and I will defeat all of your enemies. Furthermore, I declare that the Lord God will build a house for you, a dynasty of kings. For when you die and join your ancestors, I will raise up one of your descendants, one of your sons, and I will make his kingdom strong. He is the one who will build a house, a temple for me. And I will secure his throne forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. I will never take my favor from him as I took it from the one who ruled before you. I will confirm him as king over my house and my kingdom for all time, and his throne will be secure forever. And so, by God's divine appointment, not only did a humble shepherd become a great king, he also became the father of a kingly family through which God chose to one day send the greatest king. One who, like David, would be born in Bethlehem. A king who would also be known as a good shepherd and one with a humble heart. And that brings us back to John Newton's text from 1 Chronicles, which was David's prayer of response to God's promises. These things that God had said he would do for David, this is David's prayer back to God in response to that. Uh, let me read it for you again, but from a more modern translation. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and prayed, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my family that you have brought me this far? And now, O God, in addition to everything else, you speak of giving your servant a lasting dynasty. You speak as though I were someone very great, O Lord God. What more can I say to you about the way you've honored me? You know what your servant is really like. 
For the sake of your servant, O Lord, and according to your will, you have done all these great things and have made them known. That's David's response to grace. Who am I that you've brought me this far? You speak as though I were someone very great, when in fact you know where I've come from. To know John Newton's story is to know the story of a man who was also stunned and humbled that God in grace would make something significant out of his life. We're going to get into the details of Newton's life more in the weeks ahead, but suffice to say, absolutely no one who knew John Newton as a young man, John Newton included, would have ever imagined that he would one day become one of the most respected ministers in England and author a hymn that has given voice to praise by literally millions around the globe. King David knew from whence he had come. No one would ever have imagined young David as the man who would become the most revered king of Israel. He had been nothing more than a shepherd boy when God called him. In his family status, he was literally the runt of the litter. But that's what God, grace does. It willingly, even excitedly, reaches right past the beautiful, accomplished people with their perfect smiles and their 6'2 physiques and their disgustingly wavy hair. <laughs> and it puts its arm around the one that nobody else can see. You know what grace looks for? Grace looks for a humble heart. That is what God saw in little David. Everybody else was looking at all sorts of surface success indicators. But God was looking at a heart. And humble hearts often grow best in inconspicuous places, like pastures that are far away from spotlights and fame. Another place that humble hearts often grow is in the rubble of brokenness. I love the story of the Apostle Paul. Young Paul, or Saul as he was then known, was the polar opposite of young David. David was out in the pasture, but Saul was on the fast track with his pedal to the metal. He wanted to go places and accomplish things, and he had the natural abilities that he was doing it. He had smarts, he had political connections, he had this drive to excel. What he didn't have was he didn't have Jesus. In fact, he hated Jesus and everyone who said that they were a Jesus follower. He was actually making a name for himself because of his ruthless efforts to eradicate this group of people that professed faith in what he thought was a ridiculous claim of a resurrected Messiah. That is until the day that he was charging along a road on his way to the city of Damascus where he was going for the express purpose of hunting down and prosecuting some more of these so-called Christians. And suddenly, as he was on that road, he was stopped dead in his tracks by nothing less than a vision of the very person that he hated most, Jesus. Acts 9, verse 
verse 3. Now as Saul went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. Amazingly in grace, Jesus tells Paul first that he's been wrong. He's been wrong to disbelieve that Jesus really is the risen Messiah. And the second thing is that Jesus wants to use Paul. And absolutely nobody, Paul included, saw that one coming. Here's an element I love in that story, and it's one John Newton picked up on in his hymn. When the vision was over, we're told that Paul, or Saul, was left blind. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. See, I think that God allowed Saul to experience physically what had long been true of him spiritually. Before grace could use Paul, there had to be humility. Paul had to learn dependence. Paul had to acknowledge how blind he had been in his heart. His self-sufficient, proud charge through life had to be brought to a screeching halt. God eventually gave him back his sight, but when he did, it was to a man who had learned to see life differently. He was a humbled man with a humble heart. And that was Newton's experience as well. Newton, as a young man, had been a Jesus hater. In fact, here's what he says of himself. I know not that I have ever since met so daring a blasphemer as myself, for not contenting with common oaths and imprecations, I daily invented new ones, so that I was often seriously reproved by the captain, the captain of his ship, even though he himself was a very passionate man and not at all circumspect in his expressions. I love that phrasing, not circumspect in his expressions. Uh, let me translate for you what that means. Newton took such delight in coming up with blasphemous curses against God that even the foul-mouthed ship's captain told him to knock it off. And when a sailor tells you to clean up your language, you know you've probably crossed some lines. We'll talk more later about what moved Newton from a man with a mouth full of curses to lips full of grace. But for now, it's enough to know that when the day came, Newton could honestly say with Paul, I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. I'm thinking of two hearts this morning. One is what I might call the, uh, the little David heart. Uh, maybe like David and John Newton, your prayer is, who am I, O Lord, that you would notice me? You're one of those that's pretty sure God would have no reason to notice you, that he wouldn't really have anything significant for you to do because there are so many ahead of you in line that are more talented, they're smarter, they're better looking, they're more educated, they're more spiritual. 
you can add to the list all the things that you probably already tell yourself all the time. And I just want to encourage you that the God of grace delights to use unlikely people. In fact, they're often the ones he uses best because there is less of them to get out of the way. That doesn't necessarily mean you're going to become a John Newton or Paul the Apostle. There are people that God calls to unique and high visibility ministries. But as soon as you begin to dig into the stories of those well-known servants of God, you instantly run into a whole army of people whose names you've never known, but whose lives played a role in shaping and supporting those big names. There were the people that led the blind Paul into the city. There were the Christians who came to him and ministered to him and taught him and helped him. Some of them, we will never know their names this side of heaven. And yet God used them to help make an apostle Paul who he was. Probably most of us can point to a number of people who may be unknown to the world at large, but people that we know, their lives, their love, their faith made a difference in our own life. And I just want to say that if you will let him, God will make you one of those people for someone else. You may not even know the impact that you're having. But when God finds a humble heart that is willing to give itself to him for him to use, he will use you. I encouraged you a few weeks ago to send a note or give a call to someone, uh, one of the great faith encouragers of your life. I kind of want to give you that assignment again, but I want you to think smaller. I mean, when we think about the people who have influenced us spiritually, a lot of us gravitate toward, uh, you know, the big names. You know, there was uh, the pastor or the Sunday school teacher or the guy that led my small group Bible study. And, and we think right away of those people. But, but if you think a little more, you'll realize there were a bunch of other people that came alongside you. They prayed for you. They loved you. They showed you what it was like to follow Jesus. And, and I'd like to encourage you to think of a couple of those folks. And if they're still on this side of glory, take them in to drop them a note and just say, you made a difference. You had an impact on my life. And if they've already passed on, just thank God that he put people like that in your life to come alongside you for the journey. The question is, how might God want to use you? And I think it begins with just asking him. It just begins with making ourselves available and saying, Lord, I want to be used by you. It doesn't have to be big. It doesn't need to be flashy. I just want to... I want to be put to work in your vineyard. I want you to show me where you want me to pick some grapes. I, I want to do something. And then keep your eyes open for opportunities. And could I just point out to you one of the opportunities you have? It's little people. There are kids all around us. And, and I will confess, I'm one of those that sometimes I, I look over the tops of kids. They're, they're out of my range of vision. And yet, you may be the adult that just says good morning to that little one, just affirms that they're there, that they look to you and they see you as someone who loves Jesus and follows him and you're having an impact in their life or maybe you'll take a little riskier step and you'll see that we have a need for someone to teach a Sunday school class and you're going to think, I don't know how to teach a Sunday school class, but Lord, I'm willing to be there. Maybe I'll just be an assistant, but, but I'll be there. 
make yourself available for God to use you. And, and maybe your realm of ministry is going to be because you're a grandparent. And it's going to be just sending a letter to a kid with a stamp on it. Do you know how crazy it is for a kid to get an envelope in the mail with a stamp on it these days? But look for the ways that God could use you, even in little ways, to serve him. The other heart I'm thinking of is the heart that perhaps feel like God is just stripping you down. You thought that you had it all put together, and now it feels like the wheels are coming off the wagon, and you're not sure why. And I'm not going to make any silly generalities to imply that all of our hardship and failures are just God humbling us to use us. But I do know that uh, from some excellent personal experience, that no failure is wasted if we come to him in humility and ask him for help. The alternative is a deadly mix of failure and clutching at our own pride and I'll tell you what, that combination will always lead you to bitterness. For John Newton, his heart began to turn toward God literally in a storm, a storm that all aboard his ship were certain was going to sink them. And it was in the middle of that crisis that Newton, the avowed God-hater, reflexively found himself breathing a prayer. And he instantly realized how silly it seemed for a man like him to be asking the God that he disavowed and mocked for help. His thought in that moment was, what mercy can there be for me? Well, I guess we know the answer to the question. There was mercy. There was grace. Maybe God has allowed you to come to your crisis so that you will finally stop and ask him for help because you've always needed his help, whether you knew it or not. And not because you deserve it. Like Newton, your most natural question might be, what mercy can there be for me? I know my history. I know I've lived my life. Why would God even want to listen to my prayer? God doesn't offer his grace because we deserve it. He offers it because we need it. In love, he desires to give it. That's what's so amazing about grace. So how do we receive an amazing gift like grace? Well, we just ask him for it. And we ask with a humble heart. Here is how Newton described his own prayer for grace. With the greatest solemnity, engaged myself to be the Lord's forever and only his. This was not a formal, but a sincere surrender under a warm sense of mercies recently received. That day, I experienced a peace and satisfaction to which I had been hitherto a perfect stranger. Amen. Receiving grace begins with humble surrender. But when we do, how sweet it is to receive grace. How sweet the sound.